You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's May 8th. Many states are beginning to roll out COVID-19 recovery plans, relaxing the measures that have kept public spaces, schools, restaurants, and other businesses closed. Leaders need the best possible evidence to guide their decisions, and RAND researchers have developed a new resource to help them. It's an interactive tool that provides estimates of both the public health and economic effects of rolling back or maintaining social distancing and other disease-fighting measures. Overall, the findings suggest that while states that relax these policies now can expect economic improvements, they're also likely to see higher numbers of coronavirus cases and deaths by September, as well as rebounds in demand for beds in hospitals and intensive care units. Those rebounds could come sooner and be more severe the more restrictions are relaxed. Notably, in states with already high case numbers, drastically reducing social distancing can increase those cases to unmanageable levels. And there would be a lag time between reopening the economy and any observed spike in hospitalizations. This will make it difficult to see the negative public health effects of cutting back on social distancing until it's too late. Our experts created this tool based on evidence from past outbreaks, peer-reviewed literature, and real-time data from the current pandemic. Here's how it works. You can select different levels of disease mitigation strategies for any state. For example, if Pennsylvania were to go from a strict lockdown to, say, only closing schools, restaurants, and events. Given these parameters, the tool generates estimates for five different outcomes. The change in coronavirus infections cumulative fatalities, demand for hospital beds, demand for ICU beds, and gross state income. You can also use the tool to see how changing policies at different dates will affect the estimated health and economic outcomes. It's comprehensive, but easy to use. The RAND experts behind the tool spoke this week about what they discovered during their research and how policymakers can use the tool to make some very difficult decisions in the coming weeks. They stress the importance of how interdependent a healthy population and a healthy economy are. Anita Chandra, Vice President and Director of RAND's Social and Economic Well-Being Division, says that thinking of health and economics as a trade-off is not helpful. Instead, it's possible to create combinations of responses to COVID-19 that preserve the best in terms of both our health and the economy, while also accounting for ethical considerations related to vulnerable populations, equity issues, and access. Rand economist Aaron Strong summed it up like this. I don't see it as a zero-sum game. I see it much more like a prisoner's dilemma game, in that I would rather be out going to the beach, but I know that that's not a good alternative for the community. But everybody wants to be doing that. And so we could either... you know, open up completely and have significant consequences, or we could all cooperate together and create a a better outcome. It may be costly in the short run, but hopefully it'll be better in the long run. We will have a healthier um, population and a healthier economy going in the long run. 
The interactive tool is available for free on RAND.org, so we encourage you to check it out and explore the potential effects of lifting or maintaining social distancing policies in your state. We'll be updating the tool regularly as new data on the pandemic becomes available. Now that we've discussed the potential effects of relaxing social distancing restrictions, let's take a step back and look at why quarantines, stay-at-home orders, and prohibitions on businesses and gatherings are the primary tool we have to fight the pandemic. Rand's Douglas Ligor recently explored the unprecedented and extraordinary exercise of government power that's affecting 90% of the U.S. population. This is made possible by police powers, which allow states to make and enforce laws necessary to preserve public health, safety, and general welfare. Time and time again, courts have upheld the constitutionality of these powers, which have been used to quarantine and vaccinate individuals against their will for public health purposes, enforce curfews and other lockdown measures during emergencies, seize property without a warrant, and even declare martial law if necessary to maintain public order. Over the last two months, most Americans have accepted these measures as necessary to minimize the risk to public health, particularly the risk to elderly and minority populations. But Ligor notes that, however legal and necessary these powers are, exercising them comes at great cost to individual rights and liberties, and to the economy. On the economic front, the national deficit has increased to about $2.6 trillion dollars, and the U.S. unemployment rate has also spiked during this crisis. Perhaps even more concerning, these economic costs tend to affect marginalized and disadvantaged groups, people who are the least likely to be able to absorb and withstand their ill effects. But is there a better approach? Are there less restrictive and less expensive ways to fight a pandemic or a public health crisis without having such crushing effects on society? Making substantial investments in healthcare and biotechnology infrastructure could help avoid the need to exercise police powers at the same level during the next pandemic. Research suggests that the effects of pandemics can be substantially reduced and even isolated or localized to small areas if governments invest in such infrastructure. These investments could focus on equipment, personnel, and training that would enhance disease surveillance and detection, the widespread availability of basic health care, contact tracing, rapid diagnostic testing, and a robust global risk communication system. Improving the country's ability to quickly surge personnel, personal protective equipment, and medical space and intervention therapies could also help. Although all of these changes would require a significant initial investment, they may help save trillions of dollars preserve our fundamental constitutional rights and liberties, and most importantly, save tens or hundreds of thousands of lives. Access to food is critical to getting through the pandemic. Until now, retailers, food banks, and school food services operated under safety regulations to prevent foodborne disease. But protecting workers, volunteers, and the public from the spread of COVID-19 has meant having to develop new standards and guidance on the fly. According to RAND experts, more could be done. First, all staff and volunteers could be issued masks and gloves. Employees could also be screened regularly for fevers and tested for the virus to help identify those who should be self-isolating. And if food workers were provided with first responder status, then they could get access to priority testing and personal protective equipment. 
Second, better pay and benefits like sick leave, insurance, and access to childcare could help attract and retain workers. And finally, each of us can play a role in helping make things a little easier for food workers. Social distancing and safety behaviors like wearing masks and gloves in public remain important, but we can also practice patience, whether waiting in line at the grocery store or at the food bank, to help everyone better endure a stressful situation. No matter how long the line, remember that these workers are doing their best under very taxing conditions. Let's close today with China. Despite China's denial, there is ample evidence that the coronavirus began there, and early on, Chinese leadership apparently knew that the epidemic was out of control. Worse, it hid the extent of the outbreak from the international community. More recently, China has provided coronavirus-related aid to hundreds of countries, including tens of millions of masks, millions of testing kits, and ventilators. But according to Rand's Jeffrey Hornung, this is just another tactic from Beijing's well-versed playbook. He calls this simplistic mask diplomacy, with the goal of distracting the world from China's role in the pandemic. All the while, China has continued its provocations in the Asia Pacific, challenging its neighbor's sovereignty claims while these same countries are focused on fighting COVID-19. This includes actions in the South China Sea, an aggressive disinformation campaign against Taiwan, and the movement of Chinese vessels around the Japan-controlled Senkaku Islands. Hornung says that if China were genuinely concerned with other nations during this pandemic. Then most observers would expect its behavior to change. Quote, "Don't let masks and ventilators fool. There is an opportunity to be had, and China appears unlikely to waste it." Rand is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week.